Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 28 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome historian Dennis Sprague, director of the Glenn Miller Archives and senior consultant at the American Music Research Center at the University of Colorado Boulder as my featured guest. Sprague represents the estate of the late American big band legend and composer Glenn Miller and is author of the 2017 book Glenn Miller Declassified from the University of Nebraska Press. A journalism graduate of Iowa State University, Sprague served in the U.S. Air Force before returning to civilian life as a leading big band historian. He currently co-hosts and produces the weekly Star Spangle Radio Hour series on KEZW Radio, Denver, which is rebroadcast by both the Voice of America and the American Forces Network. But today we're going to tackle one of World War II's greatest mysteries, the still unsolved disappearance of Miller's December 1944 flight from southern England to Paris. Miller disappeared 76 years ago next week. And, of course, no discussion of Miller would be complete without hearing a bit of his groundbreaking music. Sprague joins us from Milton, Massachusetts. Dennis, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, thank you very much, Bruce, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. So, born, as you note, in uh, your book in Clarinda, Iowa, in the southwest corner of the state, Miller came of age in the early 1920s and literally bought his first trombone from money he made milking cows and mixing concrete. Uh, you note that he was so protective of his trombone that he was prone to sleep with it by his side. Is that true? Well, that may have been an exaggeration in the 1940 fan magazine where he was interviewed. But I think the story is essentially true. I mean, he grew up in several prairie towns. His family eventually settled in Fort Morgan, Colorado after Clorinda. I think Glenn was two. They moved to just outside of North, North Platte, Nebraska. And, you know, he went to high school in Fort Morgan. And um, life was difficult. There wasn't a whole lot to do. And his mother gave he and his brother, brothers and sister a love for music. And I think that was something to do. And he picked up the trombone along the way and liked it and got used to it and earned the money to have one. And other than football, where he was an all-state end um, for his high school, I think he early on developed an interest in and love for music. So uh, in the movie, The Glenn Miller Story, starring Jimmy Stewart as Miller and June Allison at, as his wife, Helen, uh, Miller is depicted as having a long road to success. Uh, but he actually got his start as an itinerant band, a big band trombone player, but soon found his real forte was arranging big band music. Just a little aside about James Stewart. You know that during the war he was a pilot, B-24 pilot. Absolutely. And he was yep. very, fond of, very fond of and related to Miller. And, you know, Jimmy Stewart once told us that he, um, his, he felt the most important role he ever played as an actor was to portray Miller. He had that much respect for Miller. Just wanted to point that out as an aside. Is that right? But, you know, Glenn, Glenn started his musical career such as it was in Boulder, where he was in school. He dropped out after a year and a half because he found he could make a lot of money <clears throat> with the bands, the territory, what they called the territory bands that existed then. And he, he got working for a gentleman named Holly Moyer, who had been in the Navy in World War One, and he taught Glenn a lot about appearance and dress and you know, the demeanor of how a band should look on the stage. He worked through a couple of other bands, Boyd Setner and um, several others in the Colorado, New Mexico, Texas area. Mm -hmm. His first big break came in Los Angeles. He went out to the West Coast and he eventually got hired by Ben Pollock. Now, Ben Pollock was the, that was portrayed in the movie, The Glenn Miller Story, somewhat accurately. Pollock was one of the top bands in the country at the time. So Miller, once Miller got on with Pollock, he had a steady job for, for a long time. And that allowed him to eventually gravitate to New York, where he settled and became a musician in the pit bands on Broadway 
and the composer and arranger. He really developed an interest in composing and arranging music as well as performing it on the trombone. He married his wife, Helen, who was a fellow University of Colorado student. You know, Glenn was very interesting when he dated Helen. He found out that her father was the Boulder County clerk. So he had to kind of behave himself when he was in Boulder because he <laughs> okay. kind of like being married to the head guy in town, uh-huh. married or dating the, the daughter or the head guy in town. One of the things I point out about Broadway and Miller, though, where he became very, very well respected by people at a relatively young age, and when George Gershwin produced the show Girl Crazy, which is a famous show in 1930, he hired Miller to um, score a bunch of the um, tunes for the uh, performance for him, although Glenn was also performing in the pit band for the show as well. He eventually worked with a couple of bands part-time. He ended up helping the Dorsey brothers, Tommy and Jimmy, organize their own band in the early 30s. And after the Dorsey brothers split up, he was hired by a British gent named Ray Noble, who was very popular in the UK, and Ray had come over to the United States to form his own band. And wouldn't you know it, the American and British musicians unions didn't get along with one another, so Noble couldn't bring the British musicians with him. So he was put on to Miller by mutual acquaintances and hired Miller to hire the personnel for the band, and Glenn had a number of contacts on that level. And Glenn also became Noble's chief arranger, and working for Noble really was what launched Miller into the next step, which was to start his own band. Above all, um, Miller sounds like a hardworking Midwesterner who is pretty nonsense. I mean, that's uh, that's the impression you get when you hear him introduce his numbers. We're going to talk about that later on, actually, on the old broadcast from, from Europe. Just want to kind of a quick question, kind of an aside. Um, mm-hmm. So when when Miller actually started out, you know, playing in the trom- tr- playing the trombone in these itinerant bands, what was the sound then in the late twenties and early thirties compared to the sound that that Miller would actually bring to the fore? Glenn was pretty much a hot jazz musician at the time. Uh huh. If you listen to the records of the era or the early broadcasts, the bands sound very different in the mid to late 20s than they do in the mid to late 30s. I mean, there were fewer musicians in the bands. They were they were very much very jazz oriented. The music was raw compared to how it evolved. Um, Miller was a, did a couple of very famous studio sessions with other famous musicians, and he solos on many of the things and he sounds like a hot jazz trombonist but it changed a lot now what do you mean by the term and sorry to inter- sorry to interrupt but what do you mean by the term <laughs> hot jazz uh, what do you mean by that hot jazz well you you'd know it if you heard it it's very it's almost guttural it's a very sharp harsh sound and it's the way jazz it's almost like a dick that remember the old original dixieland jazz band and the real dixieland music Part of this also are the limitations of the recording studios at the time. So you don't, you know, the sound you hear is is harsh compared to the sound that they were able to engineer by the late 30s. There was a great evolution at the time in terms of technology and picking up how the music sounded. So it's it's a little subjective when I say this, but I think the music was harsher in the late 20s than it was in the late third by the late 30s. It changed. Right. The other thing I would point out on the original question about Glenn was he was absolutely a focused, organized, and no-nonsense person. Everybody that knew him would tell you that and did tell people that. And the other thing was that nobody was surprised, not only that he eventually succeeded with his own band, but that he then became a, an officer in the military, a, people thought of him as a kind of militaristic in his approach to life. So it came as no surprise that he ended up in the Army Air Forces. In, in 1937, Miller began uh, having a, a, his first real taste of success in the northeast of the U.S., uh, and he began honing what would be his distinctive style. And, and part of that style was the use of the clarinet as a replacement for high-octave trumpet parts, uh, if I'm not incorrect he, can you explain how that? This is also mentioned in the Glenn Miller story, the film, and I think we you mentioned prior to taping that uh, 
that the way it's depicted in the film is not exactly correct. Can, can you explain this whole story of how this came about with the clarinet? Well, first of all, about the film, you know, Universal International only had two hours to tell Glenn's whole life. <laughs> yeah. And so they had to condense things and romanticize things. And the development of, the, of what they call the sound was actually an evolutionary process that came over a period of years rather than in one night. Um, it wasn't a voila moment where Glenn had an emergency and it suddenly developed. He, he evolved this way of phrasing the instruments when he worked for Ray Noble and was arranging Noble's recordings and broadcasts. When he was with Noble, he studied with Dr. Joseph Schillinger, who was a renowned teacher at the time, music teacher, who taught a mathematical method towards music. And Miller was the ideal student for him because Miller's best subject in school was math. And so what Miller did was evolve this sound with Noble. Actually, the, the incident portrayed in the movie where a trumpeter had, a, had an accident or hurt his lip was true. That really happened, but it was with the Noble band, not with Glenn's own band, and it happened in 1930. Five, so Glenn improvised with the clarinet, and it it it, it kind of caught on to the idea that it might work out. So he, he worked and worked and worked on the thing, and then by the time he had his own band in '37, he took a little bit further and started really writing all the parts for clarinet instead of um, trumpet. The band appeared in 1937 in Boston, as is portrayed in the film, but they also had hotel dates in New York, New Orleans, Dallas, and Minneapolis. And they did numerous colleges and dance halls all over the Middle Atlantic, Southeast, South, and Middle, Midwestern states, as well as New England. But um, yeah, he, he evolved that sound. And by the end of 37, when he folded his first band to reorganize it into the band, into the band that succeeded in 1938, and that was kind of done for business purposes. And it wasn't that the band had failed. It was that they wanted to reorganize with different personnel. Miller really had honed the thing to where he wanted it to be, and it, it, it took off like lightning in 1939. Why was this a revolutionary idea in big band music, having a clarinet lead instead of a trumpet? You know, I'm not sure it was revolutionary as much as it was evolutionary because several other or arrangers and orchestra leaders fiddled around with similar ideas. If you listen to records by a couple of other bands around the same time, you hear some some of them doing things like this, like, you know, different people had ideas of how they would orchestrate and how they would write parts and how they would have their sections play. So you listen to some vintage Duke Ellington records, for example, you might hear some similar things on them that you do, do you do with the early Miller records. Mm -hmm. Other, other leaders had their own styles. I mean, if you listen to Benny Goodman around this time, you don't hear anything like this. Tommy Dorsey, it's more of a Dixieland style. Miller was probably ahead of Dorsey in terms of evolving his sound at this time. Mm -hmm. Dorsey would catch up, though, by 41, 42. And, but one thing about this was Glenn built a band around the sections, as did Duke Ellington, because they were both arrangers. And their bands sounded much more uh, like bands, whereas Benny was a soloist on the clarinet, great clarinet player. Tommy was a great trombone player. Um, Harry James trumpet, Artie Shaw clarinet. Other bands, which were just as good or better as Miller's band, were built more around the leader. Miller's band was built around the other musicians, if that makes any sense. So one final observation, the, the film is a, is a I think it's a great film. I've seen it two or three times. It's a, I love the film, even though it may not be completely historically accurate. It was interesting that you say that the Miller started out as a hot jazz musician and the music from the early 20s and early 30s was was kind of a, not as polished. I mean, that that's when I listen to Glenn Miller in his heyday, I hear uh, an orchestra or a band, I don't know which would really apply, uh, that is extraordinarily polished. And I was just going to say that the uh, w one of my best memories uh, from college is going to a a big band dance where they were playing some Glenn Miller. I mean, I'm not that old, but but um, this was in the early late seventies, I would guess, and uh, just mm -hmm. being floored by the band itself and how and the marvelous sound. And if you haven't heard that live, it'll blow you away. 
I'll take I'll take you one step further than that. You, I would recommend that anybody who can, when they're back up performing and traveling, should make a date to see the Glenn Miller Orchestra, the current Glenn Miller Orchestra, led by Nick Hilscher. Because you can hear all the Glenn Miller records you want, but when you hear the band in person in front of you on stage, it'll blow your it'll blow you right out of the water. Because they they're the best at playing the charts, considering the fact they have an exclusive license to the original music. So they really know what they're doing. And it does make a difference. And you're right, Miller's music was very polished. I like to tell people my way of characterizing it is that Glenn had a band that played very good jazz, and he himself was had a lot of credibility in the jazz world. But he sought a more balanced and polished music, if that's the right way of saying it, to where ballads, the romantic tunes of the day, the top ten music, could be played alongside the jazz music in a balanced way. His music was always presented in good taste. And it's a lot of people who think about it have great respect for what he was able to accomplish. So, yes, I think the word polished is a very good description. Chattanooga Choo Choo, A String of Pearls, In the Mood, and Pennsylvania 65,000 were some of his biggest hits. Am I leaving out anything? Probably several dozen more top ten <laughs> or number one hits. Okay. Glenn had more. No, Miller had in the period from 39 to 42 on the charts, or 43 actually. Miller had more number ones than either Elvis or the Beatles ever had in that period of time. And they would be the top three, even even more than Bing Crosby or Frank Sinatra, too. I mean, it's incredible what he was able to accomplish. Um, in terms of record sales, the number one is Chattanooga Choo Choo. It sold the most records, and it was, believe it or not, in the Billboard Top 10, Choo Choo was on top of the Billboard Top 10 for 12 weeks in a row, which was quite unusual in those times, because usually a tune might hit number one for a week or two, and that would be about it. Mm. Because there was, there was people don't remember, there was a lot of music being produced. There were a lot of bands. There were hundreds of bands that, that were making records and on radio. There were several dozen that were on top of the heap, including Miller. So the competition was fierce, but people in that day had a lot to choose from in terms of records. And on radio, you turn on your radio and all the radio stations had bands on after 11 o'clock at night. That's all you heard was the was the bands coming from hotels or, you know, dance halls or theaters all around the country. So it was a it was quite a quite a world. And Miller was on top of it. And all of those tunes that are the, 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 the biggies that people remember all charted and were all number ones. Yes. So let's listen to uh, just a brief clip. Uh, one of his biggest hits, In the Mood. Do you think this is kind of his signature song, In the Mood? It is. Be it has become that, but I will tell you before you play it that, and, and I'll explain what you're playing after we hear it. The <laughs> the men in the band, the, 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 the people in the band got tired of it because they had a commercial radio program and they had to play that at least once every two weeks. And, they, and on personal appearances, that's all anybody ever wanted to hear. Today's band has the same thing, where the audience wants that. So, you know, from a musician's point of view, it's great that you're that popular, but you also get tired of playing the same thing over and over again. Now, for your listening pleasure, one of the top tunes on our request list, In the Mood. <laughs> That's just great. Um, what What are your thoughts? Well, that's 
um, wanted, wanted to share with the audience, that's the Glenn Miller Army Air Forces Orchestra from March of 1944. Very powerful, very dynamic. And that's one of the best versions of In the Mood you'll ever hear um, reproduced. It, it just shows you what a, not only what a good arrangement it was, but how well it was performed. And this is actually uh, from a 1944 taping at NBC Studios in New York? Correct. And you said at the time uh, NBC uh, had the best uh, technical recording equipment in the world. They did. And oh, by the way, it wouldn't have been taping at the time. It was They were recording it to disc. To disc. That was recorded, that was recorded on a 16-inch acetate, glass acetate. Which still exists. Well, uh, that's a that's a fabulous uh, song. I love it. To me, it's uh, it is emblematic of every, everything that's great about Glenn Miller. His peacetime success was soon interrupted by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December seventh, nineteen forty one. Which, as you note in your book, uh, the editor of Downbeat Magazine happened upon Miller in a cafe in Pennsylvania the day after Pearl Harbor. And Miller apparently had already made up his mind to do something in service to his country. He was quoted as saying, I don't know exactly, I don't exactly know what I can contribute to the war effort, but I am damn well going to find out. There must be something a broken down old trombone player can do to help. Is this correct? Yeah. You know, Glenn Miller had something going for him he had a great eye he had great ear for what would please the public and the public taste and that's why he became so popular he he really had a handle on public opinion and public taste but he also was felt very responsible you know he he thought that i mean a lot of young people college and high school kids were buying his records um listening to his radio broadcasts and went to see the movies as band made and he felt a responsibility to to them because he saw that in as 1941 before we came into the war a lot of young men 18 19 years old were getting drafted so he, he already had started on his radio broadcast to aim and target things to the younger people that were getting put into service he had a concept on his on, on NBC where he did a series called Sunset Serenade where he gave away radio phonograph combinations to different service camps. They had a contest of who, what's your favorite song, and the public would write in and vote on the favorite song, and the winning camp would get the award of the RCA radio console that he'd give to their you know, rec room or whatever they had at, at the base. And so... it's not it's, it, was, it didn't surprise Dave Dexter to hear Glenn say that. Because he said, you know, Miller seemed to have a better handle on what was going on in the world than anybody else did that, that he came in contact with. But yeah, he felt almost guilty that he'd been so successful. And he thought he had to give something back. And he he had a quote that, that I, I've often remembered. He, he told somebody several years later, I really don't want to ride out World War II by remote control, sitting here not doing what I could be doing to be bringing the music or a touch of home to the service people either in camps in the united states or eventually overseas so according to one article miller gave up uh, fifteen thousand dollars per week income in 42 to join the war effort uh, hoping as he put it to be placed in charge of a modernized army band and then uh, from september of 1944 until his untimely death he was promoted from captain to major Major Miller's Army Air Force Band gave 800 performances for troops stationed in England. But when he first joined, the the first step was the Glenn Miller Sunset Serenade aimed at American servicemen via NBC's Radio Blue Network. You note that the Miller was a disciplined musician, and we kind of discussed that, who was able to challenge those around him to excel and able to edit his own work with precision. Thus, he seemed to walk a fine line between creativity and a sense of precision and duty that strangely meshed with the needs of the military at the time. No, you're absolutely correct. And you talked about the money he was making earlier. It's, you know, when you look at his actual statements and books, he was doing a little over a million and a half a year personal income after all his expenses and paying all his salaries in 1941 dollars. 
and his net worth was probably about five million and growing. He was a probably the most successful financially band leader and musician in the country by far. So he he was doing very well for himself. So let's listen to uh, a Voice of America clip, which I believe was recorded while Miller was still stateside. Here we go. From the United States of America to the other United Nations of the world, Uncle Sam presents... The band of the AAF Training Command, under the direction of Captain Glenn Miller. Here's Captain Glenn Miller. Thank you, Lieutenant Don Briggs, speaking for Sergeants Mel Powell, Ray McKinley, Corporal Bob Carroll, the crew chiefs, and all the gang. Welcome to another program of Uncle Sam Presents. Musically now, our goodwill ambassadors are waiting to take off on a mission to Moscow. So, Dennis, I'm not familiar with this uh, this number, Mission to Moscow. Um, do you know the backstory on this one? Yes. Mission to Moscow is written by Mel Powell, pianist in the Air Force Band who had been a pianist with Benny Goodman before joining the military. And Mel was an arranger and a composer, and this was a Mel Powell original composition and arrangement that Benny Goodman recorded and then Glenn Miller used for the Army Air Forces Band. As you noted in your book, uh, Miller arrived in London in '44. And the Nazis' V-1 buzz bomb assaults were well underway. And in the film, the Glenn Miller story, there's a scene in the movie where Miller and his band are playing outside on a beautiful day in what looks like a university setting, but in fact, as, as you note, was at uh, Bentley Priori, a monastery. The, when uh, a V-1 buzz bomb starts flying, the band is broadcasting, but in the movie, it still plays on. Is this uh, apocryphal, or, or did this really happen? Yeah, it actually is the um, scene in the movie is is based upon an actual incident where while the band was performing at a, at a concert, actually, at the Priory, which was a military hospital, they were performing outside. The weather was good. They were outside and they were playing. And I don't know if they're playing in the mood like they are in the movie, but they were playing something. And a V1 came over or at least within the vicinity. And, of course, they made a distinctive sound. You knew it was a V-1 when it came anywhere near you. And Miller did hush the audience and kept the band playing until the sound of the engine disappeared um, over the horizon and was out of audible range. Now, in the movie, the the v, V-2, V-1, excuse me, not V-2, that's a different beast. The V-1 impacts and the band then goes to the coda or the end of In the Mood. I'm not sure that happened. The actual story as I know it is that they didn't hear the actual impact of the V1. They just heard it overfly in the vicinity of the uh, appearance. But yes, it's based upon a true story. So we're going to listen to just a bit uh, from a BBC uh, Radio 1 broadcast of the era. Captain Glenn Miller, a program featuring the voices of Britain's Vera Lynn and Royal Air Force Sergeant Jimmy Miller. Captain Franklin Engelman, and good evening, everybody. We've been over here a few weeks now, and before we go any further, I want to pass along a word of thanks to all the fine folks in the British Isles. The way you've made us feel welcome is a real thrill. 
You've made us feel that you have not only taken us into your home, but into your hearts as well. And to you Yanks over here, well, all I can say is we're mighty glad to be here with you. But our job is making music, not conversation. So here goes with a Jerry Gray arrangement of the sergeant's own tune, Caribbean Clipper. So interestingly, though, Dennis, um, the BBC soon deemed Miller unsuitable for their airwaves. Uh, so I'm a bit confused by that. Uh, I thought that he was already known in the UK and, and liked once he got there. That's a bit of a misnomer. The BBC had a policy called constant modulation to get because they had, you know, they had signals going out over the British Isles and, you know, some remote areas where the transmitter strength wasn't that good. And they started when Miller first started to be um, carried on the BBC broadcast. One of the things they did was they were substituting the Miller Band for a, it was like a summer replacement for a, another program the BBC had that was going to come back in the fall. And the original intent was not to broadcast Miller over the domestic BBC home service, but to focus the Miller Band be, being a military orchestra on the combined network that the BBC and the Americans had built and on the BBC's own general forces program because, because of the idea of entertaining the troops. But, you know, England's not that large, and even the combined network, BBC-American network, could still be heard by the British civilian population. And the people obviously knew who he was, and they were thrilled that he was there. In fact, to this day, you'd think Glenn Miller was British and not American to listen to the British. They love him. And it, it, But no, this is an exaggerated story because the constant modulation was trying to play the music in a constant volume so that it could be heard everywhere consistently. They, they enforced that policy on the BB Symphony, Sir Adrian Bolt. They imposed it on all the British dance bands prior to the war. So when Miller showed up, he had these subtle arrangements where on the ballads, it could get really soft and then the music on the swing stuff could get very loud and so the bbc engineers couldn't modulate they couldn't <laughs> go up and down with their volume meters on the thing so um and sir adrian bolt the conductor of the bbc symphony who became very well acquainted with glenn and they became friends sir adrian told him glenn don't worry about this they're not singling you out personally i've been dealing with this this policy with them for years with the bbc symphony so <laughs> And, and Miller was never taken off BBC. He, he, he was the home service stopped carrying the Miller Air Force Band, but that was by plan. But he was but the combined allied radio service, which he was there to staff, the, his reason for being there and the um, BBC General Forces program and the American Forces Network all continued to carry the band. So that's a little bit of an exaggerated story. So interestingly, uh, uh, Miller actually was, when he was in London, he was actually taping at Abbey Road Studios, uh, the historic studios, which in the 1960s, the Beatles kind of called their home, uh, kind of called home. And uh, so um, I did not realize, this, this is something I actually learned from reading your book. Did, the, did Glenn Miller have much of an influence on the Beatles sound? You know, the band had to record at Abbey Road because it was so big. They couldn't fit they couldn't fit the band on the stage um where they normally broadcast. They couldn't they they had to record at Abbey Road for these um purposes for the um propaganda broadcasts that they did. And it was EM, EMI was the company, the, the RCA Victor affiliate in the UK were the ones that owned it at the time. And yes, he did have an influence on the Beatles, at least as far as the Beatles will tell. If you look at what the Beatles say they claim that a lot of the Miller's approach to intimacy in some of the music, particularly the ballads, they paid very close attention to and tried to evolve or develop with their own style during the rock era. I find that fascinating. And people do see the connection between Miller and the Beatles. You know, while Miller was in the UK, one of the policies they had for the American, excuse me, the Allied Expeditionary Forces program that he staffed was that the Miller Band appeared with British artists so as part of the policy of, of a united front so that 
you heard the introduction earlier where Vera Lynn, who recently passed away, sang with the band. They had a policy on their weekly broadcasts um, around the UK and in continental Europe that a, a British guest star would appear with the band on all the broadcasts, and that was done. And, of course, there were Americans that came over as well. Um, Bing Crosby and Dinah Shore both appeared with the Miller Band when they were in England during that time frame. By mid-December of 1944, uh, Miller and his band had orders to move on to Paris uh, to spend six weeks in and around Paris, I assume, performing. And then, uh, tragically, the band, he separated from the band. And that's, uh, first of all, before you get to the flight, why was Miller separated from his band in terms of travel? First, the six weeks was a test. Miller had agreed to a six-week got in the BBC, I should say, to agree to a six-week move. They were concerned that if the band went over to France and the broadcasting facilities in France were not repaired or ready for use, they wouldn't have broadcast-quality content to put on on the on the Allied Expeditionary Forces program or on the other um, radio broadcasts the band was making. So Miller said, look, I will pre-record six weeks worth of programs with the band in addition to our own schedule. And he put it up to a vote of the band and around the 1st of November, excuse me, I take that back around the 15th of November and the band voted. Yes. Miller had gone over to France. By that time, Shafe commanded moved from England to France and was in Versailles and Miller had gone to Versailles for a series of, of um, staff meetings in mid-November, and he made this proposal when the BBC said no to moving the band from England to France. Shafe did want to move the band to France. And the reason was, you have to remember that the band had been playing at air bases for 8th and 9th Air Force units, mostly 8th Air Force, because a lot of 9th Air Force had already deployed to the continent after D-Day when they could set up airfields. And of course, the band had never appeared for any of the ground troops because they were already in Normandy by the time the band got there. Eisenhower's staff felt it would be great to have the band closer to the front lines where troops on leave in Paris could get tickets to see the band in, in person and that the band could appear at all the military hospitals that had been built in the Paris area. So Glenn, Glenn was totally amenable to that. In fact, that's what he wanted, which was to get closer to the people on the ground in the field. So he was all for it. So he worked out the deal on the pre-recordings, which broke the back of the band. They, 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 they really got tired out doing it, but the men voted to do it. They thought it was a great idea. But um, the facilities in France were not yet complete by the time the date came to make the move. And Miller's superior officer, who happened to be a gentleman named Lieutenant Colonel David Niven, and you might know the name David Niven from movies. Absolutely. David, uh, Colonel Niven, asked Miller to come ahead of the band and work with him to make sure that the facilities and the logistics were ready for the band to make the move because if, in fact, they could broadcast properly and the facility and everything worked out, the band was going to stay beyond the six weeks and permanently be based in Paris rather than in London. So that's the reason for Miller, I wouldn't say separate, from the band, but he got travel orders to go ahead, to fly ahead of the band and work with Niven to get things squared away because you didn't want to move 64 men. Actually, the whole unit was a few more people than that, plus all their equipment. That was that would take three to four C-47s, and you'd have to pull them off service to just to haul a band around, and that took a lot of planning, and you didn't want to... Then, plus, you have to billet them once they got into Paris, so you really wanted to be careful with that. So Miller, that was the purpose of Miller flying ahead. So as the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, Tiger, a Pennsylvania-based nonprofit, writes, Miller boarded a USAAFC-64 Norseman airplane for a flight to Paris to coordinate relocating the band to, to the continent, as you mentioned. Uh, Miller was one of two passengers aboard the aircraft, flown by Flight Officer Stuart Morgan, uh, the central figure on the flight, and the other passenger was Lieutenant Colonel Norman Bessell. Bessell, age 44, although not a pilot, was an important figure in the 8th Air Force. So John Stuart Morgan, who was a pilot, was trained in Canada, then transferred to the AAF as a uh, flight officer. Although he was qualified to fly 
on instrument flight rules or IFR conditions, he were, was reportedly uncomfortable on the gauges and did not have the 1,500 hours required, required for a full instrument rating. Tiger writes that the band had travel orders to fly to Paris on December 16th, as mentioned. But the weather over the channel called for overcast at 1,000 feet or lower, intermittent light, freezing rain, and localized fog. Paris area airports were, or aerodromes were open, but only for IFR flight rules, which Morgan, as mentioned, did not have. So Morgan taxied out and at 1.55 p.m. took off and, as Tiger notes, faded into the murk as the plane climbed away to the south. And once he was airborne just before 2 p.m. local time, bound for Villa Coublet Aerodrome outside Paris, he wasn't required to communicate until landing approach in France. That is, unless there was an emergency. He was fine as long as the weather was good. But as soon as the weather was bad, he was he was not you know, the best guy to have sitting in the pilot's seat. Regulations of the 8th Air Force Service Command were that it was normally one pilot and perhaps a mechanic that went along on the plane because the plane broke on the far shore. They needed to repair it. They didn't have, at the time, repair facilities. They eventually did. That's what Bazell's job was. Bazell was under the gun to get an air depot done by the first of the year um, in Brussels and um, in France. And so Bazell was in a rush just like Miller was. But unlike Glenn Miller, Norm Bazell was a very, very officious, very, he threw his weight around a lot. He was self-confident. And remember, he, like you just pointed out, he was 44 years old and Morgan was 22. Morgan was a flight officer who wanted to get a lieutenant's bars because he'd been a flying sergeant in the Royal Canadian Air Force. And the flying sergeants came into the USAAF if they were American citizens um, as, as warrant officers and what they called flight officer in the AAF. So he wanted to be a lieutenant. He, he was going to please Bazell. And if Bazell ordered him to do something, Morgan was going to do it. Now, I'll go on real quickly here. Um, Miller, like I said, knew Bazell, trusted Bazell, thought Bazell knew what he was talking about. And when Bazell said, well, have no problem if... I give you a ride, you know, forget the scheduled stuff. I'll You can just hitch a ride with me. And Morgan's a great pilot. We'll have no problem. And so Miller took the offer up. And the problem was Miller's chain of command didn't know he was doing it. They would have said no because Miller was a VIP and they weren't going to risk him on an unauthorized flight in a, in a single-engine aircraft in marginal weather. Now, neither Bazell or Morgan were suicidal. They didn't want to fly in bad weather. In the movie, The Glenn Miller Story, you see that everything's fogged in. Well, they, even Morgan couldn't have flown in that, in, all, in that kind of weather. It was actually 3,000-foot ceiling with a mile-and-a-half visibility and, and mist um, at Twinwood when Morgan landed from Alkenbury and then boarded Bazell and Miller, and then they went on their way and were never seen again. Morgan had the ability with Bazell's approval, and this is where the 8th Air Force Service Command messed up. Bazell had the authority to authorize his own flight, which was preposterous because Morgan, I mean, excuse me, Bazell had no qualifications to authorize a flight, but he did. And he ordered Bazell, to, excuse me, he ordered Morgan to fly. And Morgan had the option of visual flight rules instead of instrument rules. These flights in these C-64s normally flew at 5,000 feet on instrument flight rules. Morgan was cleared, was not cleared to go instrument. It was denied because of the weather in France, even though over England there was good enough weather to fly. I mean, 8th Air Force flew, um, two 8th Air Force B-17 groups flew um, missions that day, and the RAF flew missions that day. So the weather was good enough for the bombers to deploy over Germany. And there were other, you know, transport flights and fighters flying around. So there was, there was, there were operations that day. Um, but Morgan, instead of flying instrument at 5,000 feet over the weather, and um, which was deteriorating over the water, as you correctly point out, it got worse over the water and over France. He, he, with at Bazell's insistence, they boarded Bazell and Miller and flew visual flight rules 
where, Mor- where Morgan had that ability, but he had to keep maintain contact with the ground, meaning he had to stay below the ceiling. And therefore, instead of flying 5,000 feet, he put the aircraft in a position to fail at 2,000 feet or less. And once he was over the water, below 1,000 feet, because he had to see it. So you see what, what happens here is a typical aviation accident, a confluence of unrelated factors that come together. Why Miller's even there in the first place? A, B, Bazell and Miller both being anxious. C, Bazell ordering Morgan, and then Morgan flying visual instead of instrument. You basically put the C-64 in a position to fail in icing conditions. And you, uh, as you noted in Glenn Miller, declassified if your airplane becomes inoperable and the occupants were, were forced into the water, there was a 42% chance of fatal hypothermia after only 10 minutes of exposure under such uh, December conditions. So um, obviously that's not uh, promising, but then there's another factor which you mentioned in the book that due to icing in such conditions, there's speculation that the flight may have suffered from inaccurate airspeed indicators, which is measured by the Pitot, a small... Uh, airspeed indicator located on the fuselage and in such conditions over water particularly as in the as in the uh, john f kennedy jr crash uh over cape cod or on the way to cape cod there's always the risk that a pilot can become spatially disoriented and even confuse up with down and actually fly into the into the ocean or the sea uh, do you think that was a possibility well, there's three things. And the 8th Air Force did investigate this accident because basically what happened was they took off at 155 and they never showed up on the other side of the channel. And so, but nobody knew, nobody chafe knew they were missing for three days, but that's another story that goes on. But as far as the accident is concerned, you have to remember that they, they take off, off they go over the water, they're in an airplane. If you look at the maintenance history of the aircraft, you see that it was prone to hydraulic fluid problems. It had to actually that plane was was diverted several times in its service history because you don't want a hydraulic fluid leak over the water because you could get a runaway propeller and you don't want to be in one of these little things over the middle of the channel and the propeller breaks off the plane. That's not very smart. But then on the other hand, the C sixty fours had a history of carburetor heater failure, which means if the carburetor heater doesn't heat, you get carbur- you get ice in the engine, which clogs it up and can cause it to, to basically stall and quit. And that's not a good thing either to have happen over the water. But third and, third and what they really kind of zeroed in on was spatial disorientation, only because they knew Morgan was flying visually and they, they, they surmised that once he got out over the water, he was at least, he was no higher than a thousand feet, maybe down around 500 feet mm. and, and certainly no, and certainly no higher than 1500. So they, they thought, you know, look, this is look based upon the humid, relative humidity and the temperature that day, which was around freezing around th- when they took off from Twinwood, it was 36 degrees Fahrenheit and it got colder as they got up in the air. Um, I mean, this was classic, either fuselage ice, wing ice, engine ice, fuel line ice. And if it wasn't ice, it could have been a hydraulic fluid failure. Or if it wasn't that, it could have been spatial disorientation. Many of the pilots at the time that commented on it and and were somewhat familiar with the C-64. And I had um, a Canadian um, officer who flies a a restored C-64 Norseman tell me in Vancouver when I was writing the researching the book and writing it that these things he goes oh this thing is so prone to ice it's ridiculous I goes I I I have a mice up today and and this was in 2010 I have these planes ice up all the time so most of the pilots at the time felt like if the plane hadn't iced up Morgan may have just simply flown it right into the water and as I point out in the book you know from the altitude he was flying at the plane's cruise speed was 155 miles an hour you hit the water at 155 miles an hour and if it was a carburetor failure and it's a nose down pitch nose down situation with the engine failing um a you have no time to recover and b when you hit the water i hate to say it this way but it it, i described this to people they go what do you think happened and i said 
splat, you basically are hitting a brick wall. So and I, you disintegrate. You basically your aircraft disintegrates. And that's why that's why no physical evidence was found at the time, probably. Um, yep. So how far do you actually think the aircraft got at the time? As you note, there were three, you know, flight carters that were deemed safe. Um, one that basically went south from London directly from Dover to Calais. Uh, a second, which was a little bit further west, which uh, I believe went to Cherbourg. And then there was a third amber flight uh, corridor. Right, right. Which the was even further west. Normal route, right. The normal route flown by the 8th Air Force Service Command was the air transport route between the London area and the Paris area, which they routed the transport aircraft to the west of London so they didn't interfere with combat operations. And that corridor between Beachy Head or, you know, Beachy Head and Eastbourne, the, the navigation point was Langney Point to St. Valerie, France, which is near Dieppe, north of Paris. Um, that was the route that normally and on every single flight Morgan had flown, they flew. And it was about a 68-mile path across the water. Some people have speculated that maybe he tried to take a shortcut that day. That would have been fatal flying east because he would have been shot down by his own enemy aircraft fire because of the V-1 threat. The, the, you Transport pilots would have been idiots to fly that direction. And some people speculate that Morgan was off course far to the west. But most likely, if he was on course, and he, there's no reason to believe he wouldn't have been on course, and we do have observations of the aircraft over flying both a civilian observer in Reading, England, and and a um, which was right on course, and the Royal Air Force observer, excuse me, the Royal Observer Corps at at, at Dover, at at Beachy Head logged an American C sixty four flying over their position in the two thirty to two forty five p.m. watch, which would sync up pretty well with the time it would take the aircraft to get from a Twinwood and, and fly that that far along the route they had to fly. And also Morgan was familiar with the navigational aids. He was, he had, you know, the aircraft was fully equipped with VFR navigational aids. So what we call NDBs or, or beacons were available to him. So all he had to do was tune the right radio frequency and follow the arrow and stay on course. Um, the Army Air Forces felt the plane was on course and basically on time and went down somewhere over the water. And because they never had any debris sighted, identified, or washing up on shore, either on the British side or on the French side, the assumption was, and I, I tend to agree with this, that the aircraft probably impacted the water somewhere mid-channel, you know, 30 miles out one way or the other, out towards the middle of the channel. So one of the uh, most intriguing ideas for a possible solution to the mystery came in 2017 when a fisherman from southwest England contacted Tiger in Philadelphia with this story of snagging the aircraft in his fishing nets. As Tiger notes, in June of either 86 or 87, uh, this fisherman was trawling for mullet and squid several miles off Portland Bill a sliver of land protruding from the Dorset coast in England, and he, snabbed, he snagged something at a depth of 130 feet. Uh, he pulled the net out of the water and was amazed to see a small, mostly intact aircraft dangling from the A-frame at the stern of the trawler. Uh, he su subsequently did a sketch depicting a high-wing monoplane with fixed landing gear. Uh, what are your thoughts? Several things. First, Morgan would have been dumb to have been that far west. That's almost 200 aeronautical mile, aer miles west of where he should have been to go that far to the west and back down. And the reason for that is not necessarily because he might not have chosen it. It's not impossible that Morgan might have chosen to go that direction. But what makes it improbable is time. Based upon time of day and sunset that day, Morgan didn't exactly want to be trying to shoot an instrument approach into um, Orly because Sevilla Comblay did not have an aisle instrument landing system 
and the weather was going to be bad. So whatever Morgan did, whether he climbed and flew over the clouds, stayed under it to try to get across, um, he was going to have to land in Paris, and that was problematic. And so he didn't want to get into Paris after dark. And he certainly wasn't going to want to try to shoot an instrument approach into Orly, which was an alternative field to where he was trying to get. So the idea of him being that far to the west is, is to me, strikes me as kind of odd. The second thing is the obvious, that in, a, in an intact aircraft is improbable based upon the scenario that the Army Air Forces at the time and I and the RAF and the United States Air Force today believe is more probable and you have to remember the C-64 was high wing with fixed landing gear. You know what happens to high wing and fixed landing gear when it touches the water if you try to ditch it? It, uh, it flips start, over. It flips it over. Wheels. Cartwheels, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's you can't really ditch the thing. So the idea of an intact C-64 being dragged up by somebody, and by the way, the fisherman story was known to many of us back in the 1990s. It isn't a new story. It, it's not impossible but it is improbable. So you note uh, that today's technology could likely find the plane's Pratt & Whitney uh, WASP engine on the channel seafloor at a depth of some 115 feet, along with its two-blade Hamilton standard propeller. Uh, you note that the uh, British Royal Air Force nor the German Luftwaffe used this engine, so it might be easier to identify. Uh, along with other potential seafloor debris um, in a flight car corridor between Lagny Point and St. Valerie. Is this the area, would this be the most likely corridor that, that Morgan would have taken? Yes, and people in the past have claimed to have found the plane, which none of these claims have ever been substantiated, are, as in the Tiger example with the fishermen, far to the west along the westerly corridor, which is improbable. Others have speculated Morgan took a shortcut to the east, and people say, well, we found the plane in 40 or 60 feet of water off of, Cal uh, off of um, um, you know, Dieppe, well, or, or even further over to Pas-de-Calais. But the problem is, is that, again, they, they think it's intact. Here's, here's the thing. I think it's out where the Air Force think, and the RAF both think it is. But here's the problem with it. First, you have an engine block that has survived because it's it's large and it's big and it's metal. It has a bronze identification plate on it with the Pratt & Whitney serial number. That may have be corroded over by 76 years in seawater, so we may not be able to read that. But it would be the only one out there because the C-64 was the only aircraft to have that 1936 vintage engine on it. And... Um, that, that was the only C-64 to have been known to have gone down on the water. So if you find that exact engine, it doesn't matter whether you have an ID plate on it. It would be the only one out there. It'll have pro probably part of the aluminum cabin attached to it, shattered. It may have some of the aircraft skeleton attached to it. These planes were a steel frame with Sitka spruce wood and fabric laid over it. So that was so they'd stay lighter and they could be landed in a short distance because a lot of the planes were used for medevac purposes in the theaters of war. So it was a great plane, by the way. There was nothing wrong with an horseman. It was a good plane. You could put floats on it, land it in the water. It did a lot of neat things. But um, here's the problem with salvage. You have to be very patient. You're going to have to be very um, well-financed. And you may eventually find the needle in the haystack among all the other junk that's on the bottom of the channel. But you got one problem. You don't want to be run over by old tankers or freighters, if you follow my drift. Right. Yeah. You're out in the middle of ship you're out in the middle of shipping lanes. Plus, the aircraft debris may have been dragged by the vibration of the ships. Because remember, these ships are passing over the bottom at a relatively you know, they're almost on the bottom. It's pretty shallow water, relatively speaking, anywhere from 100, and, as you point out, 115 to 150 feet deep. So that churns up a lot of the bottom, and, the, and this debris will be under silt. So what about a submersible of the sort that uh, found the Titanic? Uh, you, couldn't, uh, uh, you couldn't use that to find this engine? I think you could, but it'd be overkill, and it'd probably be too expensive. You wouldn't need it. You could send down a little robot, almost like a... Um, a smaller, much smaller unmanned version. Mm -hmm. You could send a robot down to look around 
And um, you'd have to be, again, very patient and very well financed because it's going to take forever. Because that engine block and the debris are relatively small target to find. Just to sum up, from what I'm hearing, you think it was catastrophic icing, which led to uh, a short crash into the sea itself. My guess is the carburetor failed. The carburetor heater failed, and Morgan. I think part of what played into this was understanding who Bazell was and Morgan was, and the psychology of what happened. And the Army Air Forces did get into this in the investigation. Uh, they questioned the state of mind of all three individuals. You know, A. Miller put himself on the plane when he didn't need to be on it and shouldn't have been on it, and he was not. He was actually disobeying his explicit orders to be on it. Bazell was, you know, overstepping his his territory to to order Morgan to fly. And Morgan, as pilot in command, in the in the end, Morgan could have saved all three lives by just saying no. You know, but um, it just what happened happened, and. You know, whether Morgan just flew it into the water like many pilots believe, whether, as I think and many of the engineering experts believe that the carburetor heater failed and or you had fuel line ice and and, um, in addition to engine ice, which was just, you know, going to happen at that altitude. You know, 2020 hindsight, all Morgan had to do was climb up to 5,000 feet over that lower cloud deck and get above it and he would have been in drier air and he wouldn't have had the icing issues but and you also said though and and so when you say fly into the water you mean he was disoriented um yeah you just well once you got out there and 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 the cloud level got down so low i mean spatially if you've ever flown and you know you can look at your instruments all you want but if, if everything you see out the front of that windshield and to the sides is gray you can very easily lose you lose your sense of what is up and down very quickly. That's why in the book I mentioned JFK Jr. because I think it's a great and more contemporary example of what can happen in a single-engine monoplane, particularly with somebody who is younger and not necessarily that experienced. Morgan had the experience to be able to make that flight. And I'm not going to get into second guessing him, but he, he you know, because like I said, Miller shouldn't even have been there in the first place. But Morgan, Morgan really could have either turned the thing around and headed back, which maybe he did. We'll never know. Um, you know, because when people talk about the mystery, we know Miller boarded the airplane. We know it disappeared. We know the relative flight plan path it was probably on based upon it was the only 664 flying that day and it was observed flying along the normal route of flight. So unless he got out over the water and made a made a right turn to the west and headed 200 miles out to Portland Bill and went down over there or whether he turned left and went 200 miles east and went down over there, um, he's probably on that line between, um, uh, you know, the, the two points, Langley Point and... Uh, and St. Valerie. And so the only mystery we have really left that we can solve is the location of the debris because the debris isn't going to tell us at this point in time, we're not going to be able to find out from the debris what the actual cause was, whether it was disorientation or engine failure, because, you know, by now all of that evidence is long gone. So the shocking thing is that the Supreme headquarters of the allied expeditionary force did not know Miller was on board the missing aircraft until three days after the flight, or December 18th, 1944. And to this day, the three men are listed as missing in action. That's true. The Shafe didn't find out what had happened until the band showed up on the 18th. Now, the band was scheduled to fly on the 16th. They were delayed, too, because of the bad weather. But those three C-47s did arrive in Paris at Orly Field on a bright and sunny day on Monday the 18th and Miller wasn't there to greet him and that's when everybody started realizing something had happened General Ray Barker Eisenhower's head of personnel and administration whom the Miller band was under his department when he found out what had happened that 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 Miller wasn't there and nobody could find him in Paris Barker exploded and said how the hell could we have lost Glenn Miller how the hell we lose Glenn Miller? That was his exact response. And and the answer is, is that, believe it or not, at 8th Air Force Service Command, 
And eventually the commanding officer of the service command and two of his deputies who commanded it, the air depot Morgan was assigned to and the group that Morgan was assigned to, all three of those officers lost their jobs because come to find out that on the day after the flight, on Saturday the 16th, when the plane did not report in, when Morgan didn't report in that he had landed at Villa Cabal, they actually typed up a missing air crew report or missing aircraft report, you know, and they didn't think anything of it because the weather had been marginal. A lot of these pilots didn't report in for 24 or 48 hours after the flight, and they didn't think there was anything wrong because guess what? None of the C-64s had ever gone down or gone missing, ever. This was the first one that they were lost under these conditions. So um, what made Schaaf mad and what made, made 8th Air Force headquarters mad, Jimmy Doolittle, who commanded it mad, was that his service command had basically, I'm not going to, but they had best basically royally messed up by allowing Morgan to go in the first place, allowing Bazell to tell Morgan to go. And then when they a day later when their airplane was overdue, they didn't have the presence of mind to tell anybody, hey, our plane's missing. I mean, it, it talk about error after error after error. It was a unbelievable. But remember, the Germans had counterattacked on Saturday morning the 16th. Mm. And by the 18th, nobody was worried about a major who played a trombone. They were worried about the Ardennes. So, Dennis, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Sure. They can go to my website, dennismsprague.com, to the University of Colorado Boulder's Glenn Miller Archives website, which is easy to find. That's just under Glenn Miller Archives. We also have a presence on Facebook, and on um, I have a LinkedIn page as well. So I'm I'm pretty easily found. I'd like to uh, dedicate this episode to my late mother, who was also a lifelong fan of Glenn Miller's music. The radio broadcast and musical sound clips that you've heard on the on this episode were provided to me courtesy of the Glenn Miller Archives, University of Colorado Boulder, and the estate of Glenn Miller, and were specifically approved for this podcast. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Dennis Sprague, thanks for helping us better understand Glenn Miller's musical and wartime legacy. You're welcome. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. It's been a lot of fun. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>